Are you finding yourself homeschooling your student for the very first time? A lot of families across the United States are finding themselves in this situation as coronavirus has pushed students home from school and they are now remote educating. Welcome to Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope. I am your host, Kurt Linville. Today is Friday, April the 10th. Good Friday. Easter weekend is on the horizon. On today's show, we are going to do a deep dive into homeschooling. And this is a slightly different type of homeschooling. In most cases, this is a partnership between the local school district and the parents and the student, a bit of a three-way dance that needs to take place for the success of your student. So we're going to do some tips and tricks so that you can more successfully master homeschooling with your family. There's a lot more there than you might think. And... If you are a student, but you don't have students, you'll benefit from this too. This is about how you can do better with your own self-directed education. So I'm talking to college students across America that are now remote learning. If you are not a student of any sort, but you find yourself working from home for the first time, I did two episodes where we did a deep dive into remote working, into telecommuting for your job, Those would be very useful to go back and listen, but a lot of the stuff that you learn from homeschooling is also applicable to working from home, so you might benefit by listening in. But before we do our homeschooling deep dive, let's do a quick review of news updates about COVID-19 and the numbers for today. It's clear that mainstream media is having a harder and harder time finding things to report about coronavirus. There are a lot more personal interest stories and general information stories without a lot of really critical new information coming out. I expected this would be happening because, you know, the coronavirus epidemic is going to be with us for a while. They're all waiting for something big to change. Well, regretfully, the numbers are still getting larger. Overall, the curve has not flattened, though we have seen that happen in some locations. Overall, the curves are still steeply climbing with new cases. We don't have a lot of news to report about changes in the epidemic other than it continues to grow. As I've been saying, there's no surprise there. The main reason is we're finally getting a lot of testing in. The social distancing that is being practiced around the world is working but it takes a little while for that to start to show in the numbers for several reasons. For one, not everyone is being tested. So as new tests come in, we see the numbers grow. So those don't reflect what the social distancing is doing. For two, it takes about, oh, 10 days to two weeks, and even in more difficult cases, three or four weeks, for this virus to run its course when someone does get sick. We see a lot of new cases and we don't yet see a whole lot of recovered cases, a lot of cases that have closed. And so the numbers keep looking worse and worse and worse, but we are soon going to see the numbers turn around. This is from LiveScience.com. And they report a model that had estimated the number of COVID-19 related deaths in the U.S. to range from 100,000 to 240,000, yikes, has been revised and is now forecasting a death toll by August 4th to be around 60,000 with a peak in daily deaths of 2,000 on April the 12th. 
Boy, that is just one sentence, but it is so packed with information that we really haven't talked about before. First, the model. Well, models have been used by health departments around the world to try to sort out the best way to react to the coronavirus epidemic. It was the models that taught us that social distancing could save many, many, many lives. And when I say many, many, it's millions of lives. Also, it taught us that we have a path forward to minimize the mutation of the virus. We have a path forward to minimize overrunning our medical resources. And out of that grew our current situation. It's all models. And, you know, in the computer world for a generation now, we've heard the adage of garbage in, garbage out. So what you feed the models and the algorithms the models use to produce results can vastly change the results that you get out of the models. So as we get more information, we're able to give the models better information. And as the models have better information, then the calculations are revised, we get different outcomes, and this is a beautiful part of this one. Originally, this model was saying nearly a quarter million deaths in the United States. That has been knocked down to 60,000. From a quarter million to 60,000, folks, that's really good news. That means we have a 75% improvement. Also, the peak of daily deaths, they're now saying, is going to be around 2,000. It's really 2,212. But let's say 2,000. And they're saying that peak could happen on April 12th. That's Easter Sunday, folks. April 12th could be the peak of the daily deaths in the United States. Now, we don't know if it's really going to be April, April 12th, but the models are saying that might be the turning point. And that's a beautiful thing. It really is a beautiful thing. Other good news, while the daily death numbers continue to rise currently, we are already seeing a decrease in the number of patients that are being admitted to hospitals daily. That's very good news. There are fewer people that are sick enough that they feel that they have to get medical care. And so we're starting to see the turnaround already. The key to coming out of social distancing is going to be heavily dependent upon testing and especially antibody testing. So if you have an active infection and you get tested for the virus, then you could get a positive test establishing that you have COVID-19. However, once your body has fought off the virus, that test doesn't work anymore. Instead, they do need to look in your blood to try to find the antibodies for the virus. And I did a full episode on this too. Go back and listen to it if you haven't yet. But the antibodies are the specific proteins in your immune system that can attack and disable the COVID-19 virus. And once your body learns how to create these antibodies, then you get well very quickly. And those antibodies provide you with immunity. The jury is still out on the amount of immunity you have, but indications are you will not be susceptible to the virus again for months, years, or perhaps even for the rest of your life. Infectious diseases expert Dr. Anthony Fauci said Friday morning, which was April 10th today, that in about a week, an antibody test would become available to show who has already been infected with the novel coronavirus. This is live science reporting that the New York Times reported this. (laughs) Get all of those sources in. The bottom line is, this is awesome news. Once we have the antibody test that can be widely distributed, then we can find out who has immunity. 
what an amazing resource to have people that can now return to normalcy because they're not going to get sick. They can help people without getting sick. They can reopen businesses. They can start shopping in businesses. They can start rebooting the economy because they have developed immunity. And I believe this is going to be the path back to normalcy. It's going to take a long time. Okay, it's going to take a long time. In the first article that I mentioned, the death toll was projected by August 4th. Did you catch that? August 4th. This is still ongoing at August 4th. That doesn't mean we haven't returned to some new normalcy. But what it does mean is the models are showing months of dealing with coronavirus. And I've been saying that from the beginning as well. You might as well buckle down for the long haul. This is not going to be a quick turnaround. We just have to make the most of these challenging situations. Let's talk about the numbers. You know, it's not fun to reach new milestones, but a new one was reached today. Over 100,000 deaths from coronavirus worldwide. A little bit of perspective. If we take that 100,000 deaths divided by the world's population, that is one person has died out of every 77,000 people. And here's another dose of perspective. If we look worldwide at all the cases that have been confirmed, now keep in mind there might be 10 times as many cases that haven't been confirmed, likely there are, but of the cases that have been confirmed, meaning they were severe enough to actually get tested, 3% of those are considered serious. That means that if you're bad enough to qualify to get tested, at this point you have a 97% chance of having a mild case. Well, that says a lot. If the factor of 10 is correct, that means that three out of a thousand people might have a serious case. And out of the serious cases, the vast majority of those people also survive. We just wanna make sure that we have the medical resources to care for these folks. That's what social distancing is all about. Let's talk for a minute about deaths per 1 million in population, kind of on a global scale. I think this is some sort of an indicator on how punishing the COVID-19 virus has been for various countries. It's also an indicator of whether or not their medical resources were overwhelmed. But keep in mind, larger countries have a bigger denominator. They're just a greater population there. So this number is still a little bit skewed by that, but it's an indicator. Just don't take it too much to heart. But out of 1 million people worldwide, 12 people have died. So 12 out of a million, which I already said, is one out of 77,000. Um, in the United States, we have 50 per 1 million that have died. So the United States benchmark is 50 right now. Spain, ouch, 330 per million have died. Italy, 302 per million have died. France, 187 per million have died. The United Kingdom, 118 per million have died. Belgium, 218 per million have died. Switzerland, 110 per million have died. Why do I throw that out there? Well, perspective again. In the United States, it's 50, 50 per million have died. Now, what skews the United States numbers a little bit is that the U.S. has more population than all nations on Earth, except for two. We're the third most populous country in the world. Whenever you have a large denominator, like a big population, it makes this statistic look a little bit better. But still, it is an indicator that the United States is doing some good things to take care of its people. 50 per million deaths is pretty good on the world stage. Not the best. There are others that are doing better. 
Germany, for instance, is sitting at 31. Congratulations, Germany. You're doing a good job. And Germany is second on the planet for the most tests that have been issued. So I think we need to take our hats off to Germany. They're, they're kicking it. Good job, Germany. A couple of other numbers that may be interesting, and then we're moving on. The United States has 488,000, almost 489,000 total cases. The active cases are 444,000. The vast majority of total cases are still active. COVID-19 takes two weeks, three weeks, even four weeks to resolve. And we're still just too early in this epidemic to start to see massive numbers of people that have recovered. But it's not because the disease is not recoverable. As I illustrated, the vast majority of people recover just fine. It's because people haven't been sick long enough. So of those 444,000 cases, the vast majority of those people are going to recover just fine and have immunity, which is great news. Hey, speaking of weathering coronavirus, there is a group of counselors meeting online every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday during the lunch period, noon to one. And it's not for a counseling session. It's just for social support. So if you would like someone to visit with about what's going on and be able to voice some of your concerns, the Counseling Collaborative of Gunnison Crested Butte is holding these lunchtime talks to participate online to join the Zoom meeting. All you need to do is go to counselingcollaborative-crestedbutte.com and there they have meetings and events and the link for the Zoom meeting. Once again, that's every Monday, Wednesday, Friday from noon to one. Social support, open call, free for all. They're looking forward to meeting you there. Now, as promised, how about those homeschooling tips and tricks? Before I do though, some qualifiers about this subject. My wife and I homeschooled our family. We love homeschooling. We think it's we think it's fantastic. That said, this is not a discussion of how good of a parent you are or are not. Okay? That's that's not what homeschooling discussions are about. There's no blame, there's no guilt. Homeschooling is not the best for every student, nor is it the best for every family. I say that up front. Because in the past, when we have had conversations about homeschooling with other parents who don't homeschool, they start to get defensive. And it's just because homeschooling sounds so darn good. You know, you can make a really strong argument for it. And so some parents who chose not to homeschool, maybe they couldn't homeschool, start saying, well, have I not done what's best for my student? Well, don't think that way. Okay, homeschooling is not for every family. It's not for every student. There should be no guilt, no blame. And... Public schooling, private schooling, all the variations of schooling that are out there might be the very best thing for your family, right? So there's no judgment here. But today we are finding the majority of families homeschooling whether they intended to or not. I think another qualifier I need to put out there is there is an assumption, well, there are two assumptions about homeschooling. One is that people are doing it for religious reasons. That is sometimes the case. That is not always the case. There are many, many families that have made the choice to homeschool for reasons that have nothing to do with faith or religion. That's very, very common. Homeschooling is not just a religious thing to do. It's an education thing to do, right? It's a family dynamic, family choice thing to do. So I want to make that clear. 
The third thing that often comes up about homeschooling is what you might refer to as socialization. And it's actually a bias, it's a prejudice, and it is discriminatory, but many people believe that homeschooled students don't get proper socialization, and somehow that makes them weird. Let me say it this way. Weird parents raise weird kids. It's not about homeschooling. (laughs) So if a weird parent homeschools, you could probably expect an interesting outcome. But let's stop for a moment right there. What is normal? Some of the greatest movers and shakers and developers of amazing discoveries on the planet have been people that we would say don't act, quote-unquote, normal. Frankly, intelligence is even seen as abnormal. There are second and third deviation people in all populations, whether you're schooled or homeschooled. I don't think we really need to go there. I just wanted to clear that up a little bit. I personally have found homeschooled students to be very socially mature and fantastic, amazing kids. Okay, so now into the meat of the subject. Homeschooling rocks, people. Homeschooling rocks. It's a great opportunity for educating your student. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying that it can really work. And I'm not saying that it always does really work. My wife ran an independent school for homeschoolers, and we dealt with a lot of students that should not have been homeschooled. It's very common. But those that do well with homeschooling can super excel. And so homeschooling rocks. The main reason I believe personally, and by the way, I was a public school teacher for two years. I had an education degree. I think I know something about education. I believe in public school. I believe in education. But... The number one reason I believe that homeschooling rocks is because of the student-teacher ratio. If you put a whole lot of students in a classroom with a single teacher, it's a challenge to maintain discipline. It's a challenge to educate carefully. You teach to the averages you have to. It's not a criticism, teachers. It's just what we're forced to do. And while you try to make education individualized as much as possible for each student, that's really hard to do when you have a large classroom full of students. It's just a numbers game and a time game. It's the laws of physics, so to speak. But the student-teacher ratio of home education is amazing because you usually have like a one-to-one, one-to-two, one-to-three sort of a student-teacher ratio that's ideal for learning. What about initiative? Homeschooled students learn initiative because they have to be self-starters. It's one of the best things that comes out of homeschooling is if you are a successful homeschooled student, that means you have probably learned initiative, which serves you very well in college and also serves you very well in your career. It also means, in addition to initiative, that you've learned a lot of self-discipline. Self-discipline is that part of us that helps us to keep going on something that we really would rather not have to do because we know it's good for us, right? Self-discipline applying yourself to the task at hand, taking the initiative to start and to get it done. Those two things tend to be aspects of the character of a successful homeschooled student. Homeschooling also provides a more flexible schedule for the students anyway. It may not be more flexible for the home educator, which may not be the parent, by the way. It may not be the parent, which we'll get to in a little bit. But for the students, it can be more flexible. They can spend more time on challenging classes. They can spend less time on classes that they just breeze through. They can also start their day at a different time, finish their day at a different time. They can be schooled on the weekends. They can be schooled in the summer. 
They can take breaks from education in what would be the middle of the school year when other students can't take breaks. And that flexibility is great for families who may want to travel in the off-season, that sort of thing. It makes it possible to tailor the schedule to the needs of the student, but you have to prioritize the needs of the student to make it work. Another thing I love about homeschooling is mastery rather than just covering material. What that means is the student is encouraged to learn a subject completely, fully, to master it before moving on. When you're teaching to a large group of students, you can't do that. You want every student to get mastery, but you can't. You cover the unit, you encourage everyone to dig in there, you know, maybe there's a test or some sort of a a project at the end of the unit, and some students really did well, some students just kind of, whatever, got through it, some students ignored it. You don't necessarily get mastery, but when you're teaching one-on-one, you can wait for mastery to happen and make sure that it does, and because a lot of subjects, I would even venture to say most subjects in education, build on each other then early mastery really helps the future success of the student. Here's another one. Subject matter can be tailored to each student's interests. States across America have different laws and rules for homeschooling, but in general, the homeschooled student still has to cover the same material as a public schooled student would, but they don't have to do it in the same way nor with the same emphasis. So you can actually tailor the information to the student's interests. Now, why is this important? It's intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is when you're excited to learn something, you really want to know more about it, and as you dive in and learn more about it, it is self-motivated because of your interest in the subject. And intrinsic interest in a subject of science can lead to intrinsic interest in learning mathematics. Or like in one of the cases for one of our sons, when he was quite young, He had an intrinsic interest in entomology. He was just fascinated by insects, so he taught himself to read so that he could read the insect field guides. Extrinsic motivation is just the opposite. That's when something outside of you is trying to motivate you to do something. Now, this could be a reward system. It could be a threat. It could be a teacher or a parent or an authority figure that says, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. But when it's extrinsic, it's difficult. The spark of learning is intrinsic. Both types of motivation are necessary in education, regardless, but homeschooling gives you the opportunity to tailor the student's education to that student's interest to maximize that intrinsic motivation for learning. It's a wonderful thing to see when you see it happen. It also happens in public school classrooms, don't get me wrong. It's just a challenge to do it when you're teaching to large groups of students. also teach to the student's unique learning style. And there are all sorts of learning styles out there. Different experts list different ones, but I think the three big ones are visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. Visual learners do best by reading and seeing things with their eyes. They kind of have a visual memory aspect, and that works really well for them. 
In contrast would be an auditory learner. An auditory learner does better by hearing things. Auditory learners may read lists out loud to themselves when they're trying to learn something, whereas a visual learner will just look at it. That's because the auditory learner needs to hear it, might need to say it. Kinesthetic learners actually learn by movement. These are the students that can't sit still to learn. And in homeschooling, it's beautiful. I had a nephew who was homeschooled who used to jump up and down on a mini trampoline while he learned, because that was how he learned the most quickly. It helped him to anchor what he was studying by being able to move at the same time. Kinesthetic learners are a real thing, and it's very difficult to teach kinesthetic learners in a large classroom environment because of discipline challenges, obviously. Extracurricular advantages. And this is the last one on the list. I know that I'm singing the praises of homeschooling. I get really jazzed when I see it work out well. But like I said, it's not for everybody. But the extracurricular advantage is really tied to the scheduling advantage. So if your student has an extracurricular activity that he or she really wants to focus on, the scheduling advantage allows that student to spend more time on the extracurricular activity because it can be woven into the school day and into the schedule. And, you know, we've seen this with Olympians. We've seen this with people that become advanced in music. We've seen this with other types of sports where people are able to embrace their extracurricular activity a little bit better if they can be flexible with the schedule for their other learning. And I'm not saying you don't do the other learning. Consider for a moment, if you homeschool, you don't have to drive anyone to school. If you finish your work in a class, you're done with that class for the day. You don't have to wait for the rest of the period to end. You don't have to sit through the lunch period of whatever length it is or the recess of whatever length it is, nor do you have to wait to be picked up from school or sit on a bus trying to get home from school. If you add up all the minutes and even hours that our students traditionally spend waiting for something to happen and you focus that time into learning then it's amazing how much more time you have at the end of the day for practicing music or sports or whatever your extracurricular activity might be. Like I said, homeschooling is not for every family. The crazy thing is, now most of us get to make the most of it. Whether homeschooling is ideal for your family or your student or not, your student is likely at home right now, and there's some sort of a three-way dance going on between you as the parent, your student, and the school. And while schools are doing their darndest to make this work, the curriculum and the way that they've been teaching historically was not necessarily remote teaching, and it wasn't made for a homeschooling environment. So it's kind of an awkward dance. We need to have a whole lot of uh, generosity and tolerance and patience as we try to work through this, okay? But here are some legitimate reasons why homeschooling can be difficult. One is homeschooling is not non-schooling. I bring this up because it's really easy to fall into a trap of not doing enough schooling if you don't have to. And when we have students across America that are home full-time for the first time, it's not summer vacation. Homeschooling is not non-schooling. We still have to get there. We have to get the work done. We have to get the learning done. It's critical for the future of your student. 
Now, some students and some families benefit from scheduled accountability that traditional schooling offers. Sometimes you need to have a teacher in the classroom that says, this is due tomorrow, and then tomorrow the teacher needs to say, okay, turn it in. There needs to be a bell that rings that says, it is time to get to class or else you're going to get a tardy slip. Some people just work a lot better under those sorts of parameters than others, and that's one of the reasons that homeschooling is not for everybody. Homeschooling is much more time-intensive for parents. Not all families have time to devote to it. If you have a two-income family, both of you are working full-time plus, and you're trying to homeschool at the same time, that's probably not going to work out. Homeschooling is a tough decision. It usually means one of the parents stays home or only works part-time so that the students have the parent-directed education in their younger years especially. In the lower grades, it's, it's pretty much critical. As you get to the higher grades, there are other options that open up, which I'm going to share with you in a moment. But it's very, very time-intensive, and it's a huge family decision. It usually means a marked loss of income to homeschool. It really does. Homeschooling also comes with added expenses. And I say added expenses, I mean many added expenses. Consider for a moment that you're being taxed to pay for public education. And when your student goes to a public education school, then that student is receiving the benefit of the taxes that you've paid. If you homeschool, (laughs) then those taxes don't go away. You're still paying for your student to be schooled, but you are also paying for the education. You're buying curriculum. There is no school lunch program. The curriculum is super expensive, by the way. Also, you're giving up personal income to be at home with your student. The list goes on and on. Every extracurricular thing that you do comes out of your pocket. You know, there are no field trips that are paid for by the school. It all comes out of your pocket. And it does get rather expensive. It's difficult from a financial standpoint. I have long said that parents that wonder if they're smart enough to teach their student, maybe the parent didn't do all that well in school, wasn't that interested in education, and now the parent says, I don't know if I have what it takes to actually teach my kid. Well, I've long said that the student-teacher ratio takes care of most of that. And parents tend to have that intrinsic motivation to learn how to teach their student if they decide to homeschool. And so I really don't see that as normally to be a problem until perhaps the upper grade levels. When you start getting to the more advanced courses, especially the STEM courses, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, when you're starting getting into those science and math courses in the upper levels, then it does take quite a bit of expertise. But here's the good news. Homeschooling is not really homeschooling at that point. It is parent-directed education. I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. But there are opportunities for other people to assist. But it's still a problem. The more advanced courses may challenge the parents' knowledge. It, It could happen. There is automated curricula that can be used so that the students can learn without the parent being as involved. There is self-learning. Students that are intrinsically motivated and love a subject will teach themselves. As long as they have the curricula, they can teach themselves, even if the parent's like, I don't know how to do that, right? And there are lots of resources outside of the home, which takes us back to parent-directed education. Parent-directed education is when the parents enlist the help of outside resources to help educate the student, and there are all sorts of these. There are special programs that are put on by public schools, 
so that families can homeschool and still get the public school support. These options programs, as they're often called, can be a great help. It means that your student is probably going to go to an abbreviated program that's just a few hours each day or maybe only one or two days per week. And then there's a lot more home learning outside of that. But that allows someone that is capable and well-educated in advanced coursework to be able to assist your student. Now, the public school system actually has a motivation for doing these sorts of programs as well, and that is that if you're purely homeschooled, then in a lot of states, the public schools in your school district lose the revenue for your student, meaning you're still paying the taxes, but that student doesn't count as one of the student headcounts that determines the amount of revenue that the school district gets. Kind of interesting. By setting up an options program, they can claim the student as headcount and they can get the revenue and you still get to homeschool. Other resources available. There are more now than there ever were before. Obviously, on the internet, there are all sorts of programs and curricula that allow students to learn online. Entire school curricula programs are available for online learning now. Amazing free resources, even Wikipedia. I mean, let's face it, it's amazing. What about Khan Academy? Now that's great. There are hundreds and hundreds of resources online for home education. But in addition to that, there are dual enrollment programs, and these are awesome. Dual enrollment means for your advanced student who qualifies, they can attend college at the same time they're working on fulfilling their high school requirements. So what that means is maybe they're taking a college algebra class. Well, they're getting AP credit at high school, and they're also getting college credit. And in some cases, the college is either discounted or free because arrangements have been made between the colleges and the public schools for this to be an opportunity. So dual enrollment is fantastic. Um, my two students who have graduated from high school so far both graduated with nearly a full year of college credit done by the time they graduated from high school. That's pretty fantastic. Saves a lot of money as a family, too, because those are courses that in college won't have to be paid for out of the family funds. Parent-directed education works, and that means that you may not even be teaching your student anymore. Other people could be teaching your student, but your student is not necessarily attending a traditional public school program. So that is homeschooling in a nutshell. Forgive me if that seemed a little bit long. There's so much to it, it's hard to encapsulate into just a brief summary. Tips and tricks for at-home learning, and I'm calling it at-home learning because your student may be enrolled in a traditional program but still learning from home right now, which is different than homeschooling. It's not the same thing. Number one, keep a schedule. Now, the school may be enforcing a schedule anyway. I don't know if they are or not, depending on your student and your school. But keep a schedule. Make the clock the boss rather than just the parent. This is critical. When the clock reaches time to change subjects and start a new subject, the clock is the boss, not the parent. 
The biggest challenge to homeschooling, I think, is parents trying to get kids to do things that kids don't want to do. And while children, especially, tend to respect the authority they don't know well, they also know how to take advantage of parents to get their way, right? You want to remove the parent from locking horns with a student. Make the clock the boss. The clock can be the bad guy. Now, the parent's still the enforcer, but you point to the clock. Use smartphone alarms to change classes. That's a great way to do it. The alarm goes off. Okay, put away what you're working on. Take a five-minute break. Be right back here. Now you're starting your next class. If you don't have that schedule, again, lots of things start to go south. If the student has a lot of courses, then be absolutely sure to address each one in the schedule before going back to spend more time on specific time-consuming subjects. Now, this may seem obvious to people. From a traditional schooling perspective, the school bell rings, you go to your next course. It's really easy for students who are in the thick of trying to finish that math assignment or that difficult science assignment or the essay that they're writing to not want to stop. They just want to keep going until they're done. That's human nature, right? So the bell rings or the smartphone alarm goes off and they're like, well, I'm just going to finish this before I start the next class. Don't do it. Because what happens is you get to the end of the day and some classes fall off the schedule. That's a very bad thing. You don't want that to happen. So make sure the student sticks to the schedule, addresses every subject, and then what doesn't get done? Well, it's homework, right? We do it after hours. That's the way it always has been in traditional education. Homeschooling should be no different. It's really critical that you do this. I think perhaps this is the single biggest tip that I can offer is have a schedule, make the clock the boss, and make sure that the schedule is adhered to. Now, some other things that really, really matter. They're less logistical and more about your relationship with your student. And I have had a lot of parents tell me, I would never homeschool my student because I think I would kill them. And of course, they don't mean that. But they do understand that it can be a real challenge to maintain a positive, loving environment when you're with your student all the time, right? To that, I say love covers a multitude of sins. It's not going to be perfect, but if you make love-based decisions about your homeschooling, it's going to work out. If you love your student, you're going to get past the challenges. Adjustments are challenging for all of us, but likely more challenging for your student than they are for you. Your student is accustomed to a schedule and friends and attending a school. It's normalcy, and young people haven't yet learned how to roll with the punches as well as adults have to. Here's another one. Praise is worth a thousand threats. Let me repeat that. Praise is worth a thousand threats. You need a reward system rather than a punishment system if you want home education to work. Remember what I said about intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation? Well, reward systems can drive intrinsic motivation. Punishment systems tend not to. And behavioral change psychology over the last hundred years has proven punishment is to eliminate behaviors. Rewards are to motivate behaviors. So if you use punishments or threats to try to motivate your students, it will eliminate their interest in learning. It will. So don't do it. Doesn't work. I mean, from time to time, you can make sure that they experience the consequence 
that comes from not completing their assignments, but that's different. I'm saying don't threaten your students to try to get them to perform. It's the biggest mistake you can make. Here's something else. There are some phrases here that you need to learn. Here's one. I was wrong. Here's another one. I don't know. Here's another one. I'm sorry. Here's another one. Let's find some help. Now, some of you who know Louise Penny's books would say, oh, I know those four phrases. Yeah. Well, I I kind of knew those four phrases too before I read Louise Penny, but these are things that build integrity and make relationships work between parent educators and students. I was wrong. I don't know. I'm sorry. Let's find some help. As a parent, you don't have to know everything, and you need to admit it when you make mistakes. If you lead by example in these areas, then your student will also have license to make mistakes and then go back and correct mistakes and be okay with that and get the help they need to succeed in their education. On these reward systems versus punishment systems, do not use do it or else language. It won't work. But you can do this. You can say, wow, how interesting. Get that done and then we can fill in the blank with whatever reward works for your student and for you. You can celebrate achievement that way. You can also say things like, your teacher will be so proud of you. I'm proud of you. How about that one? Or maybe when your student underperforms a little bit, you could say, great start. Now let's dig in a little more together. Did you hear that magic word? Together. We call it elbow time. Elbow to elbow learning where you sit down beside your student and you set the example of loving to learn. You know, it's fine to say, I don't know, but let's find out together. It's fine to ask lots of questions to try to find the source of the student's challenges or frustrations. It's fine to work some example problems. All of these things, if you're engaged with your student, then your student will be engaged with you and with the subject material. And guess what? It's a love language. It makes students want to perform It's a beautiful, beautiful experience to have with your kid. So go for it. Now, when I say elbow-to-elbow learning, you're also trying to cover your job remotely while your student is trying to cover school remotely. And this is a huge scheduling challenge. So the elbow-to-elbow time, it doesn't have to be all day long. I would recommend when you start a new subject, the, uh, the smartphone alarm has gone off, you're transitioning to the new subject, that's a perfect time to sit down with your student, open up the books, help them get oriented to the new material that they're going to work on, get them started, and then walk away. Let them self-perform for a while while you do what you need to do with your job. It doesn't take that much time, but it makes sure that the student's on task and makes sure that you've addressed any challenges to learning on that subject matter, and it provides that elbow-to-elbow love language time that's so critical between parents and children. Now, don't get stuck in the emotional excuse domain either. And what I mean by that is, while I said, I don't know, let's find out together. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to make mistakes. You can say, I'm sorry. Don't get stuck in the excuse domain where the student is, well, but I don't like this. And this is because of, and well, the teacher said, but I didn't know. No, that doesn't work. That's manipulation. Hear the student's concerns, acknowledge them, and then point back to learning. That's got to happen. You always have to direct the student back to learning. You can say, oh, I get it. Yeah, that's tough. Hmm, okay, well, let's see if we can fix that. I bet we can solve this together. 
don't let them get stuck in the excuse domain. Don't let students think that they can manipulate you as a parent into not doing the work. Instead, solve problems and figure out ways that they can successfully do the work. And don't allow a lot of excuses. Listen to their concerns, acknowledge them, and then point them back to being on task. If I were to summarize everything I just said, I would say, keep a schedule, make the clock the boss. I would say, love covers a multitude of sins. I would say that elbow-to-elbow learning is critical and that you can't allow a student to get stuck in the excuse domain. Those four points. If you can address those four points and lead with love, your student will be successful homeschooling. And guess what, college students? You can do this for yourself, too. Might be self-discipline, but these things really matter. Stick to your schedule, right? Reward yourself. Give yourself positive self-talk. It's okay to not understand something. Go find the help you need so that you can be successful. And these things also apply to working from home as well. Just go down the list. Everything on that list applies to telecommuting or remote working for your job. So there you have it, folks. This is the longest show I've recorded to date. And I hope that you found it useful. But there's so much information there. I hope that you are being successful with home education. You're being successful with home college education. You're being successful with remote working. You can do this. Thank you for listening to Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope. We will get through this thing together, yet apart. My name is Kurt Linville. This show is produced by Caleb Linville. And until the next episode, be safe out there.